Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, and verse 14. Matthew 12 and 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flex shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment into victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you tonight for your holy word. We thank you tonight that indeed it is a holy word, that even as we thought this morning on its inspiration and its power, we understand, Lord, that the book that we are reading and that we hold in our hands is nothing less than the very breath of God. So, Father, we pray tonight as we look into this page that you would speak to our hearts, that you would challenge our lives, that you would change us, conform us and transform us into the image of your dear Son. We pray for anyone who is disheartened, anyone who is discouraged, that tonight, O oh God, your word would indeed set them aright and would encourage their hearts and cause them to look again to the Lord Jesus. And we pray for any who are not saved, anyone who is not yet a Christian, that this evening may prove to be the day of their salvation, that moment in time when they come into a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In our gospel text this evening, the Lord Jesus Christ once again found himself at loggerheads with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were out to get him. In fact, they were always out to get him. And here we find they're seeking after his life. And you might say, well, what is it? Why are they chasing and hounding him to death? Well, because he believed and taught that people are far more important than religious traditions. In other words, that to feed a hungry man on the Sabbath or to heal a lame man on the Sabbath took precedence over legalistically observing the rest day. People count. People matter to God. And we should always remember that. People are an important part of God's thinking. And where there's a conflict between human need and ceremonial or ritual law, the Lord wants us to first fulfill the human need. The human need takes priority over ceremonial law. Now the Pharisees didn't really get that. For them, if a man was hungering on the, on the Sabbath, it was their philosophy to let him hunger until the next day when he might be served a meal. If a man fell into a ditch on the Sabbath day and broke his leg, well, there he lay, irrespective of the pain that he was in, 
until the Sabbath day was over when they would then collect him out of the ditch. To the Pharisee, the Sabbath was everything. It didn't matter what the circumstance, the Sabbath had to be upheld. And so Jesus challenged their priorities and at the same time he questioned their authority in this area. And so these fine, upstanding, religious people sought to put him to death. You know, I imagine had we been in the Lord's shoes at this point in his experience, that there would have been perhaps on our part a measure of resentment or bitterness toward the Jewish people, toward the Pharisees in particular. You know, imagine, if you will, that you are the one who has come with the power to heal and you have been causing the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and the dead to rise. And yet, having ministered in that way and, and, and having done those things before them, far from acknowledging your power and your place, uh, those in charge seek out to kill you. And yet we read here in Matthew that when the Lord Jesus knew that the Pharisees were set to destroy him. He withdrew himself and the great multitudes followed him and notice it says, and he healed them all. Now there's grace, isn't it? You know, if it were me, I'd have said, listen, forget it, fellas. I'm not healing anybody. You know, I'm done with you people. Uh, I wouldn't have healed a single person perhaps, but not the Lord Jesus. He goes right on. And as, he, as Matthew reflected upon this thought, his mind was drawn by the Holy Spirit to the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 42 and what we have already studied as the first servant song. And uh, here he quotes that servant song in verse uh, 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Now notice that 20th verse. <clears throat> A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. It is a direct quotation of Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3. And it's a wonderful verse and a marvelous insight into the caring and compassionate mind of Christ. You know, I can see almost in my mind's eye Isaiah as he's penning these words. He's just come in from uh, gathering the reeds and uh, those reeds that grew so plentifully in the Jordan Valley. And perhaps then he had tied them to his belt having sharpened them in preparation for writing. And uh, he sits down at his writing desk. His light is beginning to fade and he lights uh, a lamp and then as he goes back to his desk the lamp begins to die, the light begins to die and so reaching out he does what would have come instinctively perhaps with his fingers and he would have extinguished the, the uh, wick and then uh, re-wicked uh, re the lamp and uh, begun again to make sure that he had light and then you can imagine him as the room becomes a glow again, he resumes to his desk, he sits down with a reed in his hand preparing to dip it into the ink when he notices that the reed is damaged and so he does again what comes now Naturally, he crushes that reed. He throws it into his wastebasket and he picks up a fresh reed and prepares to write his prophecy. And then just as his pen touches the paper, the Holy Spirit says, listen, when Messiah comes, 
a bruised reed he shall not uh, break, and a smoking flax he shall not quench. Aren't you glad tonight for the patience and the suffering and long-suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ with us? And maybe you're here tonight and you feel much like a bruised reed. Maybe you are a smoking flex, that your lamp isn't burning quite as brightly as it once did. Uh, maybe even others have sidelined you, have undervalued your worth, and are about to consign you, as it were, to the waste bin of humanity. But not the Lord Jesus. He holds out hope to the hopeless. He offers help to the helpless. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flex he shall not quench. Let's go back to that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42 and look exactly at what it was the prophet said as he originally penned these words. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Again, the first of the four servant songs of the book of Isaiah. And he says, Behold, my servant, verse 1, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flex shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he hath set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Now Isaiah, of course, he saw broken reeds. Jesus saw broken men and women coming to him with physical needs. But just like reeds, even the best of men can be unreliable and undependable and you know sometimes we look at the work of God even among our own uh, number and our own assembly and we may get flustered and frustrated at times as we see some folks who just don't seem to be as dependable as others people who are not as uh, as not as constant as others and man can be so undependable and unpredictable they're rather like a, a broken reed you know, I remember as a boy, and I'm sure many of you will remember this, learning to write with a fountain pen. Do you remember learning to write with an italic, italicized nib on a fountain pen? Now, I, I, our younger viewers will not understand this. <laughs> uh, you know, they, have, they are not used to uh, using fountain pens. In fact, now they're virtually not used to even using pens. Uh, they said that uh, this generation is actually losing the ability to write. Uh, as a consequence of uh, constantly using keyboards. And uh, that's rather unfortunate. But in our day, uh, you were taught to write uh, after a while, first with pencil, and then you moved on up into fountain pens. And a uh, fountain pen was difficult to write with because uh, you had to be much slower. You had to be much more purposeful in your writing. And you learned how to write joined up lettering by means of a fountain pen. But you'll remember, and if you've used one, what a frustration it was. Do you remember how frustrating it was? How that, uh, you know, you would sometimes put that pen down on your paper and what? A big blot of ink would come out. And you had this piece of paper called a blotting paper. And then you had to take that paper and you had to rub it over the ink or, or soak the ink up and, and try and clear the sheet as best as you could. And then you'd proceed uh, with your writing. And there was frustration, wasn't there? You know, I remember I was just eight years old when I was using a fountain pen. 
And I remember being frustrated as a child. And, and I kept thinking, why can't we just use a barrel? Probably like young people today are thinking, why can't we just use a keyboard? Uh, but same thing. I was like, why can't we just use a ball pen? Why have we got to use this fountain pen? And uh, you know, there was a degree of patience required with a fountain pen. There was a, a degree of, uh, of care that had to be taken. And how we longed just to use a simple, dependable pencil again or a ball pen well that's so like our service to God isn't it you know when we when he would take us and he would use us for the fulfillment of his will well sometimes our self-evident flaws come to a head and and we find that we're not capable or we're not we're not fit for his service we're like the deacon who was praying about a neighbor of his and thought he should go and witness to his neighbor who was an atheist and he marched across to his neighbor's house and he knocked on the atheist's door and the atheist opened his door and he said to him I've come to speak to you about the Lord Jesus Christ and his neighbor began to reel on him and called him all kinds of names and told him to clear off in no uncertain terms and the poor deacon withdrew and he went back to his house and he said Lord I'm a blot on your service he just felt like such a failure he cried I'm a blot I'm a blot I'm a blot and as he was crying I'm a blot the atheist had come across the street having felt a measure of regret at his ill treatment of his neighbor he come across and he heard him on his knees crying I'm a blot on your service Lord and the atheist was moved in his heart that the deacon was so taken with his salvation that he actually allowed him to sit down and explain the gospel to him and was born again I wonder do you sometimes feel like a blot on God's work like you're a stain on God's work that other people are far better at it, as it were, than you are. You're a bruised reed. Sometimes a person is bruised by sin. The Bible speaks of sin's bruise. It says that Christ was bruised for our iniquities. You know, sin has come and it's damaged us and it's left us robbed of our dignity and our purpose and our worth and our hope. And we're not what we hoped we would be. You see, sin has somehow detracted from us and has ruined our spiritual usefulness, ruined our dependability before the Lord. And yet with all what we find, the Lord will not cast us off. He will not cast, cast away the soul that is bruised even by sin. For he is the bruised bearer. And he bore our sin. And he will not break the root bruised reed, but use it as we surrender to his word. Sometimes we're bruised by failures. You know, maybe you have fallen. Maybe you have failed. Maybe you feel like you've let down both God and man together. And in your mind, there's no point in going on. You sense complete despair. You feel sure you'll feel again, feel again and again. And you're, you're a reed that is bruised, a reed that is effectively being consigned to the waste bin. And so it would seem. But then we turn in the pages of our Bible and we read these words. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him by his hands. The bruised reed he shall not break. Sometimes we're bruised by our limitations. You can't sing. You can't preach. When you open your mouth to witness, you get all confused and tongue-tied. You've been there, haven't you? You tried to witness to somebody and you've come away feeling like you just made matters worse instead of better. That you got them more confused than they were even before you came along. 
You feel like there's so little you can do that that's such, uh, such is the case that you'd be better off doing nothing, that you'd be a better servant if you didn't witness because you're making such a hash of it. And you're an unlikely volunteer, a reluctant conscript, and, and maybe your personal uh, worth and self-esteem is rock bottom, and you think to yourself, well, I'm useless, I'm obsolete, I'm inept, I'm redundant, I'm bankrupt, I'm weak. You know, others might accept that self-portrait of you, but the Word of God tells us the Lord Jesus will not accept that self-portrait of believers. He says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect, in your weakness. Isn't that a wonderfully encouraging verse? Our brother t touched on that Wednesday night. You see, you may be bruised, but you're not broken. And Jesus can use you. And he will use you, if you will, but surrender your weakness to his strength. You know, writing to the Corinthians, who were actually a very wealthy uh, and a very intelligent group of people, Paul said this, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. In other words, the Lord always uses the underdog, the one that's least expected, the person who's perhaps not the most intelligent, perhaps the person who's not the most able in terms of their speech, the person who's not the, the most gifted among us, is very often that the, the person that God uses, especially to accomplish his good purposes. Are you a bruised reed? Then take heart. Because whatever others may think of you, whatever, whatever others may say about you, Jesus will not have you be broken. In his gentleness, he heals the brokenhearted. He soothes the bruised. He uses that which men deem unusable. But why? Why would the Lord mess with a bruised reed when there are so many others who are within his reach who seem to be better fitted for his service? Well, notice the Lord's purpose. We read there that not only will it be the case, a bruised reed, that he shall not break, but the smoking flecks shall he not quench? A smoking flex shall he not quench? Here's the thing, the Lord wants us, he wants you to shine. He wants you to shine for him. You know, he wants you to be a light for him. You know, we see the smoldering flex with its thin wisp of smoke curling upward into the air and our extinct instinct is to extinguish it. But that's not the Lord's instinct. You see, for us, it doesn't matter that a brilliant flame once burned there. It doesn't matter to us that there was once a great glow of that wick. For us, the glow has all but disappeared and the thing needs to be put out, but not to Jesus. Ever so gently, he blows upon that thing. And as he does so, he rekindles the flame that once burned there. You know, I'll say it to you again. The Lord wants you to shine. We've seen it in this gospel, Matthew 5 and 16, where the Lord says, Let your light so shine before men that they may uh, see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know, there are men within whose hearts, whose, uh, within whose hearts the fires of God once burned, 
but hindrances entered their lives and prevented them in, their, in continuing on in their usefulness. The flame of devotion has, wickered, uh, has flickered, uh, it's faltered, it's dwindled, it's disappeared. It's only left behind a thin pall of what once was. And that's uh, co- as a consequence perhaps of wrong thinking or perhaps spiritual depression set in. Or depression then maybe led to frustration and frustration to inactivity uh, and inactivity to a sense of usefulness. And others might look at a person like that and say, well, just let them go. Let them go. Let them do their thing. Leave them alone. Sometimes we're critical of people who feel. Sometimes we are even cutting in our remarks about people who are struggling along the way. But not the Lord Jesus. You see, it's not in his interest. He shall not, he shall not quench the smoking flecks. I wonder, is that you tonight? I wonder that you once burned brightly for the Lord and now you're just a smoking flex. I wonder, is it the case you were once on fire for the Lord but now there are just embers where once there burned a flame. And maybe you think, well, that's it. I'm finished. I'm all, I'm all washed up. I'm at the end of my journey. God has no more use for me. Well, praise God, you're wrong. The Lord Jesus said of every one of us who know him, you are the light of the world. He's not prepared to let the light go out. He's not prepared to defeat his own purpose. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flex shall he not quench. Notice he shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, verse 4 says, nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Look at the Lord's power. He shall not fail. Hmm. Do you think that can be said of you or of me, that you'll, not, you'll never fail? Does the Bible say that? To say, listen, David Moore, he's never going to fail. Everything he does is a success. Take the Bible, I would have me believe that. You know, when I was uh, 11 years old, I was sitting, uh, preparing to sit the 11 plus uh, qualification exam to go into grammar school or secondary school, whichever way it went, depending on whether you passed that exam or not. And at the time, that was a big deal in our education. To pass the 11 plus was a huge thing. And kids were put under a lot of pressure uh, to do that, to pass. And so we would, we would set all kinds of uh, exercises in order to prepare us for the 11 plus, both in terms of the type of exercise as well as timing you so that you could do the exercises quickly in order to fulfill all the requirements of the exam. But I had a teacher, Miss McElroy, I'll remember her to my dying day. You can tell that already, can't you? I even remember her name now. Miss McElroy was like Miss Trunchbull in, in Matilda. Have you ever seen the, the film Matilda or you've read Roald, Roald Dahl's book Matilda? You'll have encountered Miss Trenchpool. Miss Trenchpool was a horror uh, in that book. You know, she, uh, she had a recreational sport of throwing the, throwing the uh, hammer, I think it was, if I remember correctly. She threw the hammer. She was a big bullish woman and uh, she terrorized children. Well, Miss McElroy wasn't a big bullish woman. She was a skinny little woman, but she had a face like an eagle. <laughs> And uh, she certainly terrorized children. And so when we were, we were preparing for this exam, she kept telling me over and over again, you're going to fail. You're never going to pass this. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. Every day she told me I'd be a failure in the exam. And then one day I thought, I've had enough of this. <laughs> so I came home to my parents. 
And I said to them, you know, there was like uh, practice books you could get for the 11 plus. I asked them if they would purchase me some of these practice books, that I was going to prove this teacher wrong, that I wasn't going to fail. And so I started on my own volition doing these practice books. And I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced. Now, Miss McElroy might have been an educational genius. She might have been using reverse psychology in me and realized that she would get the best out of me if she kept telling me, telling me I couldn't do something, that I would just prove her wrong because that's the kind of person I am. But nevertheless, I went and I rehearsed and all those ex exercises, and I did them over and over and over again. And I sat that exam and I passed. And I remember when the teacher was running through the, through the roll book and, she, and you had the shout out, terrible thing really when you think about it, you had the shout out, fail or pass, and she called out your name, fail or pass. <clears throat> and I remember shouting pass. I couldn't wait for her to get to my name. She called out my name and I shouted pass. And she looked up and she said, you passed? And I said, passed. And I remember my mother coming up and thanking Miss McElroy for getting me through the 11 plus. And I was outraged at my mother, absolutely outraged. I was like, how dare she come up and thank this woman who told me I was a failure every single day of my career in this class. She, she has no idea. <laughs> and my mother thought the, the teacher was responsible. I took a different view on that. But nevertheless, the point is that, you know, regardless, all of us at some point feel. All of us have to hold up our hand and say, failed, when our name is called out. And we may have to do that more than we care to admit. We all know that bitter taste of failure, whether it be in exams or whether it be in our, in our personal lives or our walk with the Lord. There's not a man or woman in this room that has not failed God at some point in the journey. And certainly there's not one of us who has failed the Lord throughout the length of our Christian lives. But the Lord Jesus, he will not fail. He doesn't fail. You see, he does succeed at everything he puts his hand to. Everything. Has he put his hand upon your life? Has he saved your soul? Has he touched your heart? Has he changed your outlook? Has he transformed your inner man? Well, he won't fail. Listen to what the Bible says in the end concerning him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, it says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that verse is talking about our perfect sanctification when the Lord Jesus comes. We will be perfect body, soul, and spirit. We will be absolutely complete in Christ, even as we are now. But even then, physically, we will be complete. We will be exactly what God intended us to be. And the next verse says, Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. He will not fail. He will not fail. You know, somebody, some people might say, Well, listen, that's not my experience. I tried Christ. I tried Jesus, and it didn't work. Well, I don't read anywhere in the Bible where you've got to try Jesus. Jesus is a savior. He's not a sample. You don't try him. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Lord Jesus is to be tried. He's to be trusted. 
Those who trust him will find that he does not fail. Psalmist said, trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and fairly thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord. He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Look at those terms. Trust, delight, commit, trust. It doesn't say try. You don't try God. A little here and a little there. My friends, Jesus never fails. You might feel him, but he'll never feel you. Never feel you. Which brings me to my last thought. And that's to do with the Lord's perseverance. Notice what Isaiah says of him in verse 4 of chapter 43. It says, He shall not feel nor be discouraged. Have you ever been discouraged with yourself? You know, sometimes we're discouraged with others. But have you ever been discouraged with yourself? You know, it might surprise you that many times I have left this pulpit discouraged, not with you, but with me. Thinking that I did a terrible job, that I didn't adequately prepare, that I wasn't in the right frame of mind, that I hadn't prayed sufficiently, and that my message had not been the kind of message I'd hoped it would be. And I will go home. And and other pastors will tell you the same thing. They do the same thing. Uh, As I've discussed it with other men, they go home and, and we beat ourselves up. And we convince ourselves that we're the worst preachers in the world. And can't understand why God would even bother calling us to the ministry. And when you're down on yourself like that, well, what happens? The devil takes advantage, doesn't he? He comes along and he says, well, not only are you discouraged with yourself, but God is also discouraged with you. He's as fed up with you as you are with yourself. He's as weary of you as you are uh, with yourself. And you know, it's, it's, it's when you have uh, conceded perhaps to sin again, and you come to the Lord and confess that the old devil comes along and he says, well, you know, God is fed up listening to this. You ever have that thought? How many times have you confessed this sin? Don't you think God is sick to the back teeth listening to your confession? You know, when we think of God that way, we make him like one of us. We put him on a human level. A level in which he shows the same nature as man. You know, when sometimes we, we say those things to our children. You know, when they misbehave time and again, we say, well, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm fed up with you. You do this all the time. And so we expect God to say the same thing. To say of us, I'm tired of you and I'm fed up with you and I've I've had enough with you. And maybe it brings you to the place where you say, well, what's the point? We just get, get discouraged. And we think to ourselves, well, that's the end of the road. But look at God's response. He shall not feel nor be discouraged. You see, later on Isaiah says of the Lord in chapter 55 that his thoughts are not our thoughts. He says, for your thoughts are not, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We mustn't try to contain the actions and mentality of God within the framework of human experience. You know, the Lord came to be a man, but he's not a man in respect to his thinking and to his outlook. And so we find here, he shall not feel nor be discouraged. You might feel like sometimes God grows weary with you, that he tires of your confession, 
that he's decided that he's no longer going to bless your life ever again, that uh, he's as discouraged with you as you are of yourself, but he never gets discouraged. You see, here's the thing with God. God perseveres. You know, in the five points of Calvinism, the tulip, as we know it, the last P there, and the word tulip stands for, for uh, the, the uh, perseverance of the saints. And the idea in Calvinism is that if you're truly a Christian, you will endure to the end, that you will persevere until the end of your life. As a consequence of that, when you think about it, you can never really be sure you're saved in Calvinism because you're never quite sure whether you will persevere to the end of your life. And that's a, that's a tragedy, it's a doctrine. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a Calvinist, said this, that he didn't so much believe in the perseverance of the saints as he did in the perseverance of the Savior. I think he got it right. It's not about whether you persevere. It's about whether he persevered. It's not about what you've committed to him so much as how he's committed to you in, in respect to salvation. And the Bible says that he shall not fail, neither shall he be discouraged. You know, maybe you're here this evening and you would say, well, listen, pastor, that's me. I'm a bruised reed. I'm a smoking flex. I'm not much in the scheme of things. I'm something of a failure. I've become something of a discouragement to the work of God and to myself. Well then listen as the Savior whispers these words of reassurance. A bruised reed I shall not break and the smoking flex I shall not quench. I will never feel. I will never be discouraged. The Lord is determined to do a work in your life absolutely determined to see you through to the end. And he wants to heal the bruised reed. He wants the smoking flex to burn afresh. And the question is, uh, will you surrender to him? Uh, you see, he wants to swap your, your weakness for his strength. He wants to heal, uh, heal you in that respect. He wants to give success for your failure. He wants to give encouragement for your discouragement. And the question is, will you allow him to do that? Will you open up your life and your heart and surrender and submit to the word of God and say the Lord Jesus you can do this because I certainly can't do it maybe you're here this evening and you're not a Christian you're not saved you've never been born again well you certainly are a broken reed broken by sin broken by guilt broken by fear perhaps Maybe you feel that nobody in this world really cares for you. and Maybe you even feel that some have rejected you who ought to have known better. The people have sidelined you that you're just a, a number. You're just a face in the crowd. You're just a statistic. Uh, you're just someone that has passed by, but not to God. I want you to give that tonight. Not to the Lord Jesus. I want to say to you tonight that the Lord Jesus loves you this evening. And so he came and he gave his life a ransom for you. And so with his outstretched arms upon Calvary's cross, he promises, him that comes to me, I will in no ways or no way cast out. He says, others may reject you. Others may turn you away. Others may despise you. Others may undervalue you. But I'm going to accept you. I will take you in. I will embrace you. I will receive you. You see, the question to you tonight is, will you come to the Lord Jesus? 
Will you trust him? Will you delight in him? Will you commit your way to him? Will you ask him to be your savior? Will you take him at his word and place your heart's trust in him for eternal life? A bruised reed he shall not break and a smoking flex he shall not quench. May God bless these thoughts to our hearts this evening. We're going to sing our final hymn.